Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. In a first for me, the Texas Monthly is this the private recording studio? Oh yeah, of, of yeah. Texas Monthly, very cool, very uh, very private. You know, it's <laughs> awesome. This is kind of cool. I'm with Russell Gold. Welcome on. Well, thanks for having me. So, how long have you been at Texas Monthly? Uh, a little about two years, a little less what than two you, years now. What were you doing before that? Uh, before that, I spent 20 years at the Wall Street Journal writing about energy. So, I mean, I got my start writing about energy for the journal back when the Barnett was just really getting going. I mean, oh, George Mitchell. Uh, it would have been post Mitchell. It was Devin. I remember one of the first, okay, cause yeah. I was living in Dallas at the time and one of the first, you know, and I was covering the independence and back in 2002, when you're covering the independence, like nobody, no one on wall street cared about those guys. No one was making any money. No one thought there was a right. future in domestic oil and gas production. And, uh, you know, so Devin would be calling me up like, Hey, we want to give you a tour of Fort Worth. Come on over here. We're doing this kind of cool stuff in Fort Worth. And I'm like, okay, whatever. It's close by. You know, it gets me out of the office for a day. So it was, you know, it was mostly Devin. Devin had it to itself for a little while. And then, you know, four sevens and everyone else started coming in, yeah. uh, chief and, and stuff like that. So, you know, my introduction to covering oil and gas was these weird people doing weird stuff, cracking open rocks that no one had ever heard of. The thing I love about the... Uh, the Barnett is it started off at, you know, call it a county and a half. Mm -hmm. I think at one point it hit 17 counties. And at the end of the day, it was probably three. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how many, how many of those, what's the way the county just south of Tarrant? Johnson, right? Mm -hmm. That That's really, that was good stuff. Yeah. Johnson and parts of Tarrant. I actually just saw that uh, Total just put in to do three three new wells in the in somewhere in southern Fort Worth. So there's still a little bit of drilling going on. I mean, on that there. was that was crazy. That was literally going through neighborhoods, knocking on doors, taking leases, yep. community rallies at the local church, and all that. That was uh, that was really wild. Yep, yep. And then you had like you know, golf courses were making just millions of dollars. Anyone who had a nice chunk of of acreage there, would, you know could just insta millionaires. Yeah. The, I remember the airport. We looked at doing the, the air, I forget the name of the Fort Worth airport. Uh, um, the one that Ross Pro developed. Yeah. Yeah. The, anyway, we, we looked at leasing that and we, we ultimately wanted to buy it. Just couldn't pay the price that the, the folks were playing. Well, Chesapeake got DFW. I can't remember who got that airport. Yeah. Gosh. And I'm blanking on the name of it. But anyway, it's probably Trevor Reese Jones or someone like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So were you at the Wall Street Journal? Did you write the article of me leaving Kane Anderson? I do not believe I did. No, we left. That. You've heard my snarky remark, right? I, I actually no. wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal. So we actually covered it. Yeah, I made the Wall Street Journal. Oh, it wasn't me. Who? I dropped that in every podcast somehow. Oh, okay. Oh, I need to look up who, who wrote this. So, so anyway, writes, you know, I get the, uh, get the story yeah. written about Chuck Yates has left the firm. I wrote a snarky letter to the Wall Street Journal demanding a retraction. They fired me. <laughs> I did not leave the firm. <laughs> I demand you retract that story. Oh, wait, did, did, did we retract it? No. Oh, I, I don't ridiculous. even, th I don't I mean, even think you published the letter. I was, I was at least thinking it was going to be funny and get published, but you know. Oh no, a, a great letter. But I mean, if, 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 if the journal bought the line that you had left when you had been fired, I guess technically leaving and firing aren't the, yeah, the same thing. Yeah. So. No, it was, I was, no, that wasn't me. No, I mean, I was, I was reporting on, um, 
oil and gas, ENPs, covered Exxon, Chevron for a little while, um, then started covering when the power sector looked like it was going to get a lot of the, the investment, started covering the power sector, utilities, renewable energy development, um, and then just kind of put it all together and just kind of, you know, big picture energy reporting. And then got 20, 21 years of doing that. I said, you know what? It's time for a midlife crisis and came over to Magazine World. That's so cool. So I really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast because I enjoyed the article that you just published, is it, what, last week, mm -hmm. week and a half ago, uh, on the Craddocks. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you wrote about because I think this is this 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 is interesting and 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 kind of personally interesting to me just because I made a few trips out to Antina Ranch and mm -hmm. dealing with Sarah Stodgner and her run for the the race. I got to I got to hear a lot of stories and and got a lot of DMs I probably should not have gotten from people <laughs> over Twitter. Um, well, what I wrote about was it's kind of been one of the 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 worst kept secrets in the Capitol, and that is the fact that. Tom Craddock and the Craddock family, which includes Christie, are major owners of mineral leases in Texas. I mean, they own hundreds and hundreds uh, of leases, not the entire lease. They own these like slivers, 1%, 2%, uh, a lot through overrides. And no one, you know, so people knew that they knew they were they were in the business, but no one had ever sort of put it all together. So starting about a year and a half ago, uh, I decided I want, I was just curious, like how much do they own? You know, who, who, you know, this is Tom Craddock was the former speaker of the house. He has been on an, the energy committee in the house on and off for 50 years. He's been in, in the house for 50 years. Um, his daughter is the top oil and gas regulator now. Uh, and they are through the, the family partnership and individually and through just, just different LLCs, uh, were heavily involved and profiting from the oil and gas business. So I started going into different county courthouses. And at first I thought I was going to have to go courthouse by courthouse by courthouse and pull the mineral rolls and figure out what's going on. Uh, and then I found out actually it was a lot easier than that, that they all have Excel files that you can download. And I just started looking for leases and adding them up. Um, and it turned out that they have based on the estimated value of their holdings, it's $20 million. That's what the, t on the tax roll, they own $20 million worth of mineral leases. But when you add up how much oil and gas is coming from each of those leases, last year, they made somewhere on the order of $10 million. Yeah, no, the, the tax rolls, historically, the, the rule of thumb in oil and gas is if somebody will sell for what they're, what it says on tax roll, just buy it. Do your due oh, really? diligence later because they're yeah. usually grossly understated. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, right? I mean, well, but don't you don't you go and fight your house assessment each year and and people know how to at least assess what houses are worth. They really don't know how to assess oil and gas. Well, so. the other thing I learned, which is kind of fascinating, is that if you you know if you have undeveloped acreage sort of sitting there right in the middle of the Permian, right, and to the east and west and north and south, someone's drilled a you know good Permian fracked well. Um, if you haven't drilled a well on it or you have a, a, an old ancient well that doesn't really get down, they're not going to assess it for what everyone knows it's worth. You know, they don't do that until they've drilled the well and you start production. So yeah, the tax rolls are, are kind of hopeless. I mean, sort of think about it. If you, if, you had, if you had an asset out there that was generating $10 million of revenue a year and someone was selling it for $20 million, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. 
Yeah, no, I'd do two years of cash flow. Yeah, that's pre- that's pretty easy. The, there was a fellow named Mike Grella, uh-huh. and I forget what Mike Grella's company's name. It started with a C. For for early on in my career in the '90s, every company started with a C. <laughs> Just I don't know what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, there was anyway. But uh, and Mike Grella actually moved to Midland because he was going to import lobster. That was and he was going to the grocery store and he brought in tanks. And he figured out that, you know, on the tax rolls, if it says 100, ought to be willing to buy it for 100. So this was back in the 90s before you you had a computer, but you really didn't have mail merge and the like. Mm-hmm. He would literally send handwritten notes to everybody on the tax rolls. He would just sit in the courthouse all day and write them down and offer them whatever was on the tax yeah. roll. And he just bought, bought them sight unseen and built a company out of it. And What happened to the lobsters? He, he, uh, the, uh, he actually sold the lobster business <laughs> to, to somebody. It, it, was, it was a lot of time. But Mike wound up making and losing fortunes. Yeah. It. But, uh-huh. but yeah, no, that's always kind of been the – did you have to do much digging in terms of company names or was it – pretty easy to figure out the LLCs. So it's not like they have 50 different LLCs and you had to go through the Bahamas or something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, this isn't, you know, it's not like kind of Russian oligarchs kind of stuff. No, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. If you got the names, you go to the secretary of state, um, you know, quarry, Craddock partners, there are a couple others. Um, and then Tom Craddock holds a lot just individually, you know, it's right there. Tom Craddock senior, Tom Craddock. Um, so it's, you know, that's why I sort of said it's kind of an open secret. They weren't trying to hide it. Um, it was out there for anyone who kind of wanted to do the work and put it together. But the story it tells um, is sort of kind of remarkable because, you know, Tom Craddock is he's a lease broker, right? He's a lease hound. He's been out there kind of buying up, up leases. And then he also does lots of work and will take these overriding royalty interests, right? So he'll He's the classic bring together people. You know, Exxon wants to sell. Uh, uh, Parker and Parsley wants to buy. He will be the guy who, who brings the, them together and he'll take his 1% override on that and then holds on to it. Uh, and then down the road, there's wells drilled there and that 1% override is suddenly worth a million dollars. And, you know, to his credit, we'll, we'll de- de- defend Tom for just a sure. second. You know, he's a mud salesman. Mm-hmm. And mud salesmen would would see things out there, put things together. They'd also probably at some point didn't get paid for mud and they got an override mm-hmm. instead. And right. so there there's probably some of that. I think I think what came out though in the in the article was, or at least the vibe I got, yeah. and, and you you tell me otherwise, was just some of these deals didn't seem to make a lot of economic sense. Right. How much true value was done and how much potentially was, I just want to be able to get this guy to return my phone calls. Right. Well, so I had one article that came out that kind of had the big picture, right? The, the $10 million, the 600 leases. And after that came out, I got a call from, um, let's just say somebody involved in, in a negotiation, uh, a deal from a couple of years back. And he, you know, he said, look, you got to look at this lawsuit because there are all sorts of depositions. So I started looking at that and it's, you know, you're absolutely right. What comes out is that Tom and his son, Tommy Craddock, were making $500,000 to just pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got a deal for you. Let's connect these two people. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's nice work if you can get it, but it does raise some questions about, um, you know, in my mind, it raised lots of questions about what is somebody, what is a family? 
who not just regulates the oil and gas, what wells you can drill, you know, what leases can be pulled together, uh, but also sits on the house, uh, sits in the house, is the, basically the dean of the house. When Tom Craddock walked around, people still refer to him as speaker, even though he hasn't been speaker for 14 years. Um, you know, it's the family business is oil and politics. They bring it together. And for them, business is really good. And look, in this day and age of computers, where you can go to Enveris and find out what's for sale and how much is this and that, it raises some interesting questions that in order to make a deal, you've got to pick up the phone and talk to Tom Craddock and pay a $500,000 fee right. to, to find some acreage. And then in addition, he's going to get a 1% override on the deal. Um, you know, that's a pretty hefty amount of money to, to bring together a buyer and seller. Yeah. And, you know, when we established our government kind of post civil war, mm -hmm. I mean, being Texans, very limited, you know, limited government right. legislature only meets every other year. We're not going to pay these people. Yep. The, the way they first started paying state reps is great because they had a constitutional amendment and they would try for years of, hey, we need to pay these people five or ten thousand dollars a year. And the voters would always shoot it down 80, you know, 80, 20. And finally, somebody way back in the day wrote under no circumstances, in no case whatsoever, even if hell freezes over, will we ever pay these people more than 6000 a year? And that's how they actually got it passed because people are like, yeah, we won't pay them more than that. Somebody finally wrote the – the. so we kind of had this limited yeah, government. Yeah, citizen legislator. Right? And it was yep. – yeah, it was supposed to be Cincinnati. You know, I'll go to Austin. I will, I will right. do my job and then I will go back home and all. But unfortunately, just with the power of government over time – a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people have been able to make money well, from being a legislator. You know, one of the things I found was kind of fascinating is that if the governor is going to appoint you to the Public Utility Commission, right, you're going to oversee the wires and, and the electricity and electricity and gas, you know, gas utility rates, you have to divest any interest you have in a regulated company, right? You cannot go in there owning Vistra or Dynagy or anything like that. You've got to divest it. I don't even think they can put in a blind trust. Um, if you're up in Oklahoma and you work for the Oklahoma Corporation uh, Commission, yep. whatever they're called, the OCC, yeah. same thing. You cannot own, uh, you can't own shares. You can't own interest. Um, you actually have to take a, you have to swear an oath. And, and this sort of shows you kind of what they used to regulate. You have to swear an oath that you can't own directly or indirectly any interest in canals, steamboats, pipelines, Sleeper cars. I mean, this is sort of historic stuff, right. right? You can't do it. But if you're working for the Railroad Commission, if you're working in the legislature, there's nothing like that, you know, and you can get paid and you can own shares in companies and you can own mineral leases. Um, and it's like this weird loophole we have, right? Because, yeah, we're, we're citizen legislators, right, here in Texas. We've got lawyers. We've got engineers. You know, we've got doctors. Um, and we've got lease hounds, right? We've got at least one lease hound out there, but it does kind of raise the question like, well, wait, what is allowed, you know? And how do you, how does he draw the line between what's, what's in the interest of the public and what's in his personal interest? Well, and it's almost twofold the problem because we have the same problem in the U S Congress, right? They can trade stocks and they do mm -hmm. trade stocks. At least the disclosure there is more robust. Right. 
arguably, if we want to, we do know the Pelosi's are worth two hundred million or whatever they're right. they're worth. I mean, Texas disclosure laws are pretty lax too, right? And this is one of the things that kind of you know was stunning to me is that if you go look at what Tom and Christy Craddock report as their income from Craddock Partners, right, which is the family partnership, it's it's Tom and his wife Nadine and their two kids, Christy and Tommy. Um, they're reporting that they they the, they earn more than I think it's forty six thousand five hundred eighty. That's the maximum you have to report. You know, based on that one lawsuit I was telling you about, five hundred thousand dollars went into that partnership. So if it's split four ways, just from that one deal, what is that? You know, uh, one hundred twenty-five thousand each. So how much are they making from Craddock Partners? It's more than forty-six, but is it a million a year? Is it five million a year? I mean, we just don't know. There, there was another instance where I wrote about uh, a set of leases in Southern Midland County called Alkaline Earth Leases. Crown Quest owns it. They drilled a couple wells on it. Um, they were the majority, you know, uh, they were the operator and majority owner. Tom Craddock Partners, I believe, was the the second largest. They had like a two percent, three percent interest. Now, this was huge flush production the first year. They made tens of millions of dollars. Crown Quest, based on prevailing oil prices, the Craddocks made somewhere around two million dollars, was my estimate, just based on you know, I think there was like twenty thousand barrels that year, um, and. If you go and look at what was reported by Tom Craddock, he reported that he made more than $46,000 in income from Crown Quest. Well, we know they made $2 million. So, you know, you, break, you make a really good point. Like, if we're going to have citizen legislators, let's have some basis for understanding how these guys are making money. Because if we don't, then we're just sort of guessing. And that's really where we are as Texans. Yeah. The... You know, it's interesting when you think through kind of all of this that a member of the Railroad Commission, and my mom listens to the podcast, so we'll say this. Hey, mom, the Railroad Commission actually regulates the oil and gas business. It comes from back in the 1890s when it was uh, regulating railroads and eventually it became pipelines, eventually it became oil and gas and from call it what 1930 to 1965, it was in effect OPEC. Yep. yep. You know the Railroad Commission set the price of oil worldwide by allocations very very similar to what OPEC does these days. But it is amazing that you can be on the Railroad Commission and actually own oil and gas interests. You can own interest. You yeah. can own shares in the company. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be against the rules if, you know, uh, the head of a a major private company, you know, Endeavor were to run for railroad commissioner. And and there's just not any specific rules that would prevent it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? Because you want you want your your regulators, you want your lawmakers to be acting in the, you know, for the industry, for the public. And not for themselves. And it's just, it's really difficult. You know, at at this point, you just kind of have to take their word for it. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think recusal laws in the, in the state of Texas are also very much, do you need to recuse? You don't? Okay, great. Yeah, we're good. I mean, yeah, we're good. And so you, you add that the, 
You know, because I have mixed emotions on this. First, first and foremost, I've only voted for the libertarian candidate for president my entire life. Okay. Because I have always taken the position <laughs> that the, the nut jobs that run as the libertarians, if those guys can get 3%, right. then hopefully somebody goes, man, if a nut job can get 3%, I could get 30% because I'm a real person. So that's always been my hope. Okay. Now, I've only voted for the libertarian, and, and that has that, that's very much my belief. So I do believe markets regulate things better than government does. I mean, that's just, there's not a panacea or else we do it one way versus another, right? But so I've always kind of had that built-in bias. I always, I'm really opposed to kind of career politicians that haven't been in a business regulating a business Mm -hmm. and all. But at the same time, I mean, if you can own an interest and decide whether somebody gets a permit to drill or not, that just feels like to me that's crossing a line, right? I mean, it, but it goes even beyond this. I brought up the the alkaline earth leases in in, in Southern Midland. There, the Railroad Commission had to send twelve what are called problem letters, basically saying, "Hey," and and some of some of these letters were like, you know, you didn't sign here, you know, real paperwork stuff. But some of them were like, "Wait a second, you've allocated acreage to 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 this lease and that lease. It doesn't add up to one hundred percent." And so, imagine if you're working for the Railroad Commission. And you've got to sit there and figure out exactly what leases, uh, you know, w- what acreage belongs to which leases. And it's your boss's dad who's going to be making the money off this. That's a really uncomfortable position. I wouldn't want to be in that position, being the person who has got to do that. And, you know, taking a bigger picture, the oil business, oil and gas business, I mean, it's Texas business. This is our one of our major industries. And not just do we want it to be robust, but we want to make sure that in 10 and 20 and 30 years, we still have, you know, that the land is protected, that the surface casings put in correctly. There, this is not an insignificant commission, you know, which is regulating something where if there's some shenanigans, it's, it'll work itself out. You know, this is our fresh water, right? This is our, you know, huge por- portion of our gross state product. This is sort of everything. And people look to Texas for leadership on on oil and gas. And and what I say is the homer for the industry cuz yeah. I'm I'm a big fan and all is we better do it or DC does it. That's mm-hmm. always that's always been right. my fear because anytime we make a mess, we don't clean up after ourselves, we don't do things right. Right. Gives Washington another arrow in the quiver to come after us yeah. with. And that that's what really scares me because you know, you start putting you know, folks from New York where, I mean, Pennsylvania has a lot of natural gas mm-hmm. in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop just because there's a border to New right. York. New York <laughs> right, has right. all of that too. I've yeah. seen, I'm not a geologist, I can't tell, but the logs look the same. Yeah, yeah. And all, and they just won't allow fracking, they won't allow pipeline and stuff. And so it gets trapped. I mean, we delegate authority to DC. The person from New York has a vote. So that's mm-hmm. why I've always been, guys, can we at least play it straight or mm-hmm. straight enough down here? Because if not, the alternative is going to be miserable. Look, Texas has been producing oil and gas for, what, over 100 years now. You know, go back to 1908, Spindletop, the big breakthrough, you know, the, the black giant in Kilgore, East Texas. Did you know the Spindletop field never paid out? No, Ken, I didn't. Ken Hirsch brought that up on uh, last week's Podcast. How did it never pay out? They were be, like, be, well, one oil was eight cents a barrel, right, but number two, they just kept drilling. 
They had no yeah. concept of reservoir engineering, so you didn't know it was a finite tank. Mm-hmm. And you go look at the old pictures. I yeah. mean, there are wells right next to each oh, yeah. other. So according to Ken, it never paid and, out. and Ken's pretty smart, so I'm going to take his word for it. It never actually paid out. Well, I, I've been um, – I had to do some historical research uh, for, for something. I, I didn't realize that when the East Texas oil field was discovered that the governor had to send in troops and declare martial law. To, to bring East Texas under control. They, they, they sent it, they declared martial law in four counties for about eight or nine months. <laughs> they were like, uh, yeah, I've no, never I, heard that yeah, story. Yeah, I'll either. show you. I've got, yeah, it was, it was uh, Ross Sterling. He sent in, he sent in the troops um, because at that point, so this was like 1931, there was enough understanding of reservoir and, and how to protect the reservoir and the drive in the reservoir that they wanted to prorate and they wanted to prevent oil prices from collapsing and the reservoir from sort of bleeding out right. too quickly. So the only way to do that was to send in, uh, to send in the troops. And actually, is my, my favorite detail is that they actually were sending out planes because back then planes were still a fairly new thing from Tyler to fly over the oil field and look for people still producing. So you've got the beginning of the surveillance state in 1931 <laughs> in Kilgore, where they've got aerial surveillance going over the oil field looking for people still still, uh, still producing. Oh, that's uh, crazy. They brought it under control, though. And, and, you know, because they brought it under control, the East Texas, you know, oil field was around when World War II started. And we won and World War II. If, right. Yeah. There's a reason that the Big Inch pipeline starts in Longview. And it's because you, the East Texas oil field was, was right there. Yeah. So. No, that's no, that's exactly right. But to uh, to get back to the to the Craddock, so I, I think Tom Craddock actually was in office back in 1931. <laughs> it's close, actually. You know, it's not that far away, really. It's closer if you think about it. When he he started in '68 or '69, it would have been closer at that point to the East Texas oil, to the discovery of the East Texas oil field than from that point to where we are right now. To the Barnett. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, pretty, maybe, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, really actually, you know, you're right. It'd be about equidistant, right? Yeah. Crazy. Uh, All right, anyway, yeah, getting back to. So, so the article, you highlight just how much money they're making. Mm-hmm. You highlight possible conflicts. Didn't highlight, I mean, technically, I don't think any of it's illegal. I mean, maybe, we, we maybe, su- maybe, maybe should have yeah. recused themselves. I mean, but. Who knows and all that. Um, the that being said, I've actually heard rumors and innuendo that there's more to the story than that. Is there a part two coming on this potentially? Or well, we've written a couple. We've written two stories on it. I would love to write a third if I can get the information I need to write the third. Yeah, I think that that's as maybe that's as far out on that limb as I can get without getting myself into trouble. Right. But you know there there are lots of uh, there are lots of stories out there, yeah. and um, I'm I'm always happy to take a phone call or a Twitter DM or an email. So so I've I've kind of said this I think on the podcast and I've certainly tweeted it out. I've had ten anon anonymous people come on the podcast and no one's been doxed. Okay. So I have maintained secrecy. <laughs> I am happy, you know. Would you be my I, conduit if they wanted to reach out to yeah, you? Yeah, if they want to come on and tell their story about something oh. nefarious happened, I'm I'm kind of happy to have somebody on the podcast because I would listen when when there's sm- where there's smoke, there's fire. I think, and 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 I also believe you need two sources. You should not insinuate anything, and I think we've been careful and haven't insinuated anything. But look, I, I take my I take my work seriously as a reporter, and I would not say anything I haven't 
been able to verify the 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 stories I've been telling. We we either had all of the the you know the government documents, or in the case of the lawsuit, we had sworn depositions from Tommy Craddock himself. You know, fairly right. trustworthy. So, you know, anything beyond that, we'd get into speculation. And you know, I want to preserve my good name, whatever's left of it, as a reporter. Uh, but you know, despite I, I would love to to listen to that episode. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to hear, it. and and I'd also love for me never to be able to do that episode sure. because I'd actually prefer, you know, yeah. if there wasn't anything like that. So, what other stories do we have coming up that you're uh, that you're thinking about? Uh, kind of out there, if you can share any. Uh, sure, sure. Well, I've got a good story coming up. I think in the next issue, I, I, I hung out with, uh, I guess, I, w- I would think it's it's Texas's newest publicly traded oil company, Permian Resources out in Midland. Yep. Um, hung out with uh, their co-CEOs, um, uh, James Walter and Will Hickey, who are both in their mid-30s and were funded in their late 20s. Right. Um, and, uh, are, are, are kind of rock and rolling out there. So it's sort of all about, uh, kind of all about the new, kind of the new kids on the block in Midland. Um, and how a couple of 30, 30 sums, 30 somethings are running a $4 billion, $5 billion New York stock exchange traded company. Um, so kind of had some fun with that. You both know, great, both great guys. I know, I oh, know right. Will better. Um, and uh, and have begged Will to come on the podcast. I'm always so yeah, offended. We should. I'm so offended he'll go on CNBC, but he won't come on my <laughs> podcast. So, uh, anyway. ask, him, ask him about his poker playing. The uh, he, he's quite a poker player, apparently. He's, he's uh, r- rumor has he's done well at the World Women's Poker Tournament from time to time. So, uh, yeah, well, read my story. We 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 get into that a little. So, so. he fussed up. So yeah. good. There yeah, we go. It's, Perfect. It's, he's done yeah. well. He's a smart guy. Look, as he said, it, it's all about uh, it's it's about it's the same. It's similar to oil, right? You got to make rapid decision. You got to make risk adjusted decisions rapidly. And get them right more often than not. And if you can do that, you can do well at poker, and you'll probably do well in the Permian Basin also. Yeah, I remember the the investment committee meeting we had at Kane Anderson, mm-hmm. where we were backing a management team, and I think the oldest member was thirty one, mm-hmm. and half the room was like, "Oh my God, these are kids. We can't, we can't, you know, take a chance on these kids and all." And I said, "Well." Our 28-year-old drilling engineer has been with Devon for mm-hmm. six years, coming right. straight out of college. He's horizontally drilled 500 wells. Show me anyone older than him that's drilled more than 500 horizontal wells. I mean, you had such a shift in technology that you had to go find a young person because they were actually doing it. And you could go find the 57-year-old longtime executive who hadn't done a modern frack. I would even go beyond that, right? Because you know, you're absolutely right. You know, 20 years ago, we had the first sort of modern multi-stage fracks going on uh, in the Barnett, um, and you know, add horizontal to that. So you can have, you know, the world's best <laughs> uh, fracking engineer. It doesn't matter if they're 60 because they wouldn't have started doing that until 40. They could be 35 and have started doing it right out of college and be as experienced as anyone. But, you know, to me, what was sort of fascinating about that is that we're going through this energy transition right now, right? We're adding on a lot more uh, renewable energy in addition, you know, to the oil and gas we have. And I'm always on the lookout for that young 
the the new industry leader who's going to come out and sort of say, I'm the champion of oil and gas in this new world, right? The world has changed. We still need oil and gas, and I'm the champion of that. You know, so you, that was one thing that kind of fascinated me about the premium resources guys, because I think they're kind of shifting into that. Um, you know, you got Toby Rice out there, obviously. He's, you know, um, Matt Gallagher, you know, sure. had, had run um, Parsley, I guess, uh, and Brian Sheffield. But, you know, right. Brian Sheffield and Matt Gallagher are kind of off in private equity right now. So <laughs> these were the two guys who were kind of emerging as, as the younger generation of CEOs. I was really fascinated to spend time with them and uh, I think got a good story out of it. You know, beyond that, Texas is still the fascinating thing. It was such an easy choice for me to leave the Wall Street Journal and come cover energy in Texas because anything you want is going on in Texas, right? If you want to write about oil and gas, obviously you got to do it in Texas. If you want to write about electricity and renewable energy and natural gas. We want to walk right about uh, new generation of nukes, the small modular nukes. That's going to happen in Texas. It's like it's all happening in Texas. So, you know, I can, it's, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm, a, you know, a pig in a sty. It's just lots of great stuff here. I'm, I'm rolling around. I'm happy. Uh, you're probably the perfect person to pick the brain on this. Because yeah, yeah. one of the things I've sort of noticed being, you know, kicked out of the club, if you will, and sitting on the outside and being, as I like to say, a social media influencer. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. But anyway, um, uh, one thing you notice about every other industry right. is that they're all leading with content these days. A private equity firm, a venture capital firm, and a media company, you can't tell the difference between any of those. And the companies that they're backing, the technology companies, the gaming companies, all are leading with content, hmm. whether it's podcasts, whether it's newsletters, whether it's video games, video games yeah. storytelling. Yeah. They're all just – I mean, pull up – so Mark Andreessen I, – I tweeted this out the other day. But Mark Andreessen, who's arguably the greatest technology VC guy, one of the top ten, whatever, um, you pull up Andreessen Horowitz's website. Their landing page is not, here's the firm, here's what we do. It's content. It's, here's our most recent podcast. Here's this mm. newsletter right. and all. And they all are very good at kind of telling their story, using content for leverage, sourcing new deals. They establish themselves as a thought leader. That's how they all fundraise. And energy just won't do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Um, no, no, I agree with you. I mean, I'm. You know, as as you know, writer or reporter, I'm I'm looking for that story, right? I want someone to sort of step up and kind of tell the story of what energy is going to look like in five or ten years. You know, because we've got government regulations, and California says uh, we're going to ban internal combustion engines by 2035 and stuff. It's like, okay, well, that yeah, that's whatever. But what's the story? Like, how do we get there? How do we get where we're wherever we're going, and why do we want to get there? Um, no, I agree with you. Like, I, you don't hear it from Exxon. Right. Yeah. Exxon is sort of seeded. I would argue its role as kind of the industry leader. You know, they're just, you know, certainly after engine number one, they've kind of curled in on themselves a little and they're kind of taking care of business and generating huge profits, but not not being that thought leader. Chevron, I think maybe more so. But but amongst the, the independents, the big premium players, who's out there sort of putting their neck up saying this is the case for oil? I, the only one I can think of that's doing it even a little bit is Occidental. Yeah. Right. Oxy is sort of. 
you know, the, the Vicky Holub has given out some interviews where she sort of talks about the future of oil and how, you know, Oxy's going to carbon capture that. story. It, right. Yeah. But, it, but it, it goes back to oil, right? We're yeah. going to do carbon capture and then we're going to sell oil that will be some sort of net zero oil. I mean, you know, um, the other story I think is kind of interesting, although once again, getting back to your point, it's not like they're telling the story, right? It's not like, um, you know, I find um, what uh, the, the, the rice acquisition of net power kind of a fascinating story, you know, like what's, you know, you got the rice family now involved in that and great technology. So, but what's the story there, right? You know, no one's come out and told the story. So it is an interesting question because if you see the story, someone else is going to step in. Someone else is out there on TikTok is going to tell the story of what energy should look like. And it's going to be influential. So it's probably not going to be favorable to us. You know, I mean, because we bury our head in the sand. Right. And we won't tell our story. But then if we do, we try to do it with numbers, facts and figures. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you're a journalist, so you'll you'll understand this. I mean, when you look at the least effective way to change somebody's mind. It's with facts and figures and reason because yeah. you're basically saying your premise sucks and I don't agree with it <laughs> or 12 or whatever. Right. People are like, what the hell does 12 mean? When you look at what is actually the most effective, it's, it's one, you ask questions. That's why the Socratic method of teaching works really well. Number two, it's you scare folks. Mm-hmm. Or number three, you make them laugh. And what I think, if you kind of summarize those three down, it's you connect on an emotional level with a story. And we just don't do that. We don't have anybody that can sit there and, and you know, we don't, we need, we need an Anthony Bourdain like character to go to a village right. in Africa and, and have the residents say, man, we got, you know, we got hydrocarbons a generation ago and now we live twice as right. long. Yeah. And- you know, honestly, it's it's really not that hard, right? Because people don't want barrels of oil, right? They want to be able to get in a car and drive to work, you know, or travel 20 miles without taking all day, right? You don't yeah. want, you know, I, I don't want gas. I want air conditioning. I want coolness in, in the summer and heat in the winter, right? You know, I, there, there are these. So you need someone to sort of come out and say, look, energy is really simple, right? We want to make sure it's affordable so people can have it. We want to make sure that it's reliable. It's there when we need it. And we want to make sure it's clean enough that it's not screwing up, you know, it's not screwing up, you know, the environment for the future. Um, Oh, and oh, yeah, sort of post-Ukraine, we also want to make sure that the energy we buy is not enriching kleptocrats and, and other people, you know, our enemies. It's pretty simple. And, you know... We can kind of, I think we kind of get ourselves kind of wrapped up in, when we talk about uh, energy and climate because those two go right together. You know, you can't really talk about energy without talking about climate these days. They're, they're, they're wrapped up, at least the way I see it. And, um, you know, it's, there are plenty of voices out there talking about climate. And it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because all of the people who write and talk about climate don't really understand energy. Right. And a lot of the people I know who understand and write about energy kind of dismiss climate a little. And it's like if you're not kind of talking about those two in the same paragraph, then what's the point? Because it all kind of comes together. You can solve the climate problem, you know, just make energy really expensive or or completely change before we're ready. 
and we can have cheap energy and we'll sort of screw up the climate. But if you're not kind of having that conversation together and that that's sort of what I'm looking at. Well, it's a water balloon, right? You're going to push in one side, the other side's going to pop out. You right. do, I, I, I totally agree with your point. And the, the thing that I find sad is YouTube, other folks might actually ban what you just said. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we can't have an intellectual conversation about these trade-offs. Right. Um, uh, and so that that worries me because it is really important because higher higher energy costs means people die. Mm -hmm. It just does. Sure. When we buy from dictators, to your point, people die, right. and you know wars happen and, and the like. And yeah. so we do need to be balancing uh, through all these things. The, and the the thing that bothers me is I can't ask the question because you always hear back. Well, the science says the mm -hmm. science says and all that. Well, I've always thought that. The observation ought to show up in data. Now, mm -hmm. you know, when 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 Newton said gravity, okay, he had to explain gravity to me, but I could right. see the apple fall out of the tree. Mm -hmm. So I could actually mm -hmm. observe. Right. And that's the hard thing for me is, okay, I'm not doubting climate change, but just show me in the data where it's happening. And that's actually really hard because if you kind of – we don't have good data – you know, we have the the Greenland ice samples that people are saying, well, it's one spot. That data is not good. And it, it's so it's really kind of hard to see. But the fact we can't even have that conversation is is really tough. You don't think that because we, it's you important. don't think we can have the conversation about parts per million and, you know, what impact uh, a, a more um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere reflecting back. You don't think that, that we're, I, we're kind of at I, that point where I, we can have that conversation? I don't think we can actually say, just show it to me in the data. Mm -hmm. I will believe it if you show it to me because then I think you come off as climate denier. Mm -hmm. Not saying. I would just like to see it in the data because at least some of the temperature studies you see, I mean, we were in an ice age 10,000 years ago. I, right. I, don't, I don't think any scientist disagrees that. And we've come out of it. And on some of the data, it actually shows that it's been – warmer since where we are now, like 90% of the time since then, you know, but there has been a rapid rise mm -hmm. over the last 150 years. Mm -hmm. But is that CO2 or is that because 1850 was the lowest point in the last 10,000 years? You know, I mean, there is a, there's a, so, yeah. and, and, and again, I'm like happy. I would love to be able to just talk about that and understand that better, but it's it's tough to actually have that discussion because both sides are yelling at each other and yeah you know you're right both sides are yelling at each other you know where i come down on this is that first of all a lot of new technologies are emerging which are better than fossil fuels putting climate aside yeah you know i think a lot of electrification that's going on it, i mean both in terms of cost and in terms of efficiency it's just incredibly you know, good technology that's emerging. Um, but the other thing I think you need to kind of think about or, or that I think about is that, you know, it's, it's sort of a risk issue. You know, if there's a risk that we're really increasing the temperature significantly and, and irrevocably, um, then it makes sense for us to do something about it right now. You know, yeah. not, not, not in a way that collapses our economy. But, right. Um, you know, that to me makes sense. Yeah. And and I do, you know, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a climate scientist. I do follow people. I, I follow both sides on Twitter, although, honestly, in the last few months, I'm just getting tired of following it because I'm not getting much value <laughs> anymore from that. Um, but, uh, you know, 
I'm not I'm not negative on oil and gas. You know, I mean, I've spent the last 25 years of my life reporting on oil and gas. I, I'm fully aware, not just of you know the people who are involved and how some of them are just some of the most amazing people I've ever met, both personally in terms of what they've been able to accomplish. But, you know, my eyes are open also. There have been a lot of problems. I covered the deep water horizon. You know, I've covered climate. You know, that there are a lot of negative impacts from oil and gas that that we're not doing ourselves any uh, we're, we're not doing ourselves any service to, to, to just sort of push away and say, you know, it's all about just providing more energy to more people. Yeah. No, I think that I think that's fair. One of the one of the things I don't think I appreciated um, some Dayton, uh, a lady that's uh, British. Okay. So when we do big digital energy, we run around and we talk about Europe. Right. And she's just called us out on it. She's like, Europe is not this uniblock. Right. Europe is yeah. 20 to 30 different countries, each having competing goals, desires, whatever. So what we did, to be fair, is mm. at the end of each uh, BDE show, we have taken a single European country and talked about their energy. Right. You know, sources, usage, all that sort. Of. And one of the things I don't think I appreciated was, you know, France went all nuclear mm -hmm. back in the seventies, mm -hmm. and you know, eighty some odd percent of their power or their energy usage right. is nuclear, and they export a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're exporting kind of twenty twenty five percent of what they produce, and that has been a massive battery. Mm -hmm. In effect, mm -hmm. for for uh, for Europe yeah, and yeah. allowed you know countries to potentially go to to wind and solar maybe faster than they should because they had the backup that France would export some stuff and so it's it's interesting because as you see them go well we're going to go from seventy five percent to fifty percent nuclear as we transition away from right. it you realize this huge potential battery is in effect it's going, going yeah, away. Yeah. And so, so there are tons of issues like that to, yeah. to kind of think through as oh. we go through this transition. No, no, absolutely. There's no question. And, you know, you talk about batteries, like there are technologies that are emerging, like geothermal sort of this fascinating technology. How big can it get? Um, you know, brought up net power before. Can you use gas in a way that cleans it up so you don't have the, um, the, the methane, um, you know, leakage on its way? And, you know, and can batteries work as batteries, right? You know, how big can batteries get? And we're seeing here in Texas some huge batteries. But getting back to your point about France and France exporting, that's one of the things that kind of fascinates me about Texas. Like we have always been a massive exporter, right? We went a number of years we weren't exporting oil, but we're back no. to exporting oil, exporting petroleum products. We'll probably be exporting hydrogen or at least hydrogen products pretty soon. Um, but for some reason, we don't export electrons right we're kind of we wall ourselves off we could make we could be a huge exporter of electricity just like francis you know run wind when when it's windy back it out with natural gas just be pumping out all this cheap electricity all across the west and the east we're right there where the west and the eastern grids come together um and we've chosen not to do that and that just to me seems like a you know what is texas if not an energy exporter both in terms of, of, of actual energy, but in terms of energy ideas. And I think that's you know, one of the things I think that unifies a lot of what I write about is how does Texas well into the 21st century maintain that 
leadership edge and energy in terms of ideas, in terms of generation and production? How do you, how does Texas continue that legacy on into the future? And is it doing what we've always done or is it doing some new approach? Um, and, and to me, that, that's, that's what drives and, and is fascinating. Um, because I think the second that, that Texas, second we sort of rest on our laurels and say, all right, well, we're just an oil and gas. We've always done this. We've been doing this for a hundred years. That's all we're going to do. And we're going to do it just the same way. I, that's when I start worrying about Texas. Yeah. No, I, and I'll do two weird things on top of that. And I know it sounds like I'm changing the topic, but you got to layer it on. I mean, there's only a finite amount of money on the planet, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and there's only so much we can spend transitioning. Mm -hmm. I mean, there just is. I mean, there's only so much money. And you can't do it by turning a blind eye to China and India and what they're doing. And the worry I have is that we're going to go spend you know, trillions potentially going to electric vehicles, which – quite frankly, may or may not help that much. I mean, if you read Volvo did a big study and they put it on their website and they talk about current energy makeup or electric generation, maybe 90,000 miles is the breakover. If you get to where Europe is, it's like 70,000. Other people report that the breakover is fewer miles. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's still, it's, I'll, I'll give them this. It's better, but is it better enough mm -hmm. to take trillions and trillions of dollars because China and India are building a lot of coal plants and are continuing to just pump stuff into the air. And what I worry about is we're not being thoughtful enough to say, hey, does us going to electric vehicles and doing all this really, you know, if we got rid of all coal in the United States, we'd reduce worldwide emissions 3%. Is that enough or should we be spending our dollars on next generation technologies. And I would actually argue it's kind of the stuff we have now is nice, but let's skip and go for next generation technologies and hope to develop something better because in the face of India and China, we've got an uphill struggle there. And that I wish Texas would embrace that more because we've not, we don't have that much of a, what I'll call a venture capital mm -hmm type mentality when it comes to energy. We've, you know, we've historically bought things at three times cash flow and we we do good with infrastructure like you're talking. Let's build a pipeline or something. But in terms of putting smart people in a lab and creating the new whiz bang that's going to save us, I don't think we've been the best at that. Yeah, but, you know, I, I guess I would I would counter and sort of say I think I think this is an infrastructure problem that we're facing. Right. This is we have a lot of the basic technology that we're going to need. We just need to figure out a way to build the new pipelines, the new transmission lines, the new, you know, hydrogen, this, or this is an infrastructure problem we're facing. We don't need the new whiz bang technology. If it comes great, but we can't count on it. You never know when it shows up. Um, we're, we in energy, we've sort of been using the same technology for about a hundred years, right? You know, yeah. I mean, we've, you know, yeah, there have been some advances, with combined cycle natural gas. Great, yeah. smart, but that wasn't a huge technological step forward. That was just a, someone figured out a more efficient way to use natural gas to, to run a turbine. And I would agree with you if we could impose that on China and India. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talked about the grand Marshall plan for energy transition really ought to be, hey, India, China, I know we all hate each other. 
but we'll finance natural gas infrastructure mm-hmm. there for 0% rate of return or maybe even take a loss, just stop with the coal. I mean, they would never do that because then they'd be dependent upon us for energy right. sources. But that if we could impose what we've done in the United States on other people, because we do have the lowest carbon emissions mm-hmm. per GDP uh, molecule – or however you measure a a, a unit of right. GDP dollar yeah yeah per dollar <laughs> yeah. we we do we've we've figured it out but it's how do we impose it on India and China and if we can't we're going to have to do something bigger and brighter and more advanced on CO two but isn't the capture. answer isn't the answer I mean right putting aside carbon capture but isn't the answer just to outcompete them on efficiency so it's like you should stop building coal plants because. It's just a lot cheaper and better for your GDP to to run off natural gas or to run off you know renewables or whatever yeah. whatever it is. Just, yeah, I mean it's an economic competition yeah. at the end of the day. So if they if they're going to be building coal plants and it's going to be sort of you know, hurting their economy, then then we win. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, and I mean I think it physics matters at some point that you know we've we've hit efficiencies. As much as we can. The other uh, flips- think, Let me ask you this. What yeah. do you think about the direct air capture, right? Like there's this idea that, oh, we can still put it out. We'll just be able to – into the atmosphere, we'll just be able to suck the carbon molecules back in and we'll bury them underground because, hey, you know, we've been – we know how to do reservoirs and we we can figure out a reservoir to seal it into. I mean – This, this is going to be the worst answer on the planet. Go for you're it. Gonna, you're going to roll your eyes at me and, and probably rightfully so. I've always thought that at the end of the day – the United States does crisis better than anyone on the planet. Okay. We suck at day-to-day. I uh-huh. mean, we don't do day-to-day very well. But the Nazis want to go march across someplace, we'll handle it. I mean, we do crisis very well. Right. And I actually think at the end of the day, if this turns out to be there's – a, there's a train of thought that CO2, you know, will cause temperature to flatten. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, you know. But if it becomes a huge crisis – American ingenuity will solve this. We will go figure out some way to suck out CO two out of the uh, out of the atmosphere, and or man through ingenuity will just adapt. You know, I mean, I mean that's sort so, of yeah. That was yeah. kind of the Rex Tillerson answer, right? Yeah. We'll be we'll figure out a way to adapt, and you know, maybe that's right. I, I've you know, to, I, I've been sort of thinking about recently, like, all right, so so let's say we come up with this great direct air capture technology. We can suck as many carbon molecules out as we want. And, you know, there's a cost yeah. to it, but we'll yeah. figure out a way to finance it. So where do we want to be, right? Because my parts per million that makes me here in, in Texas feel comfortable is going to be different than what's good in Siberia, right? They, they're going to want yeah. it a little warmer because, oh, hey, you know, global warming, climate change has actually made some areas better for – you agriculture, know, agriculture and, and living and gosh, it's not. So this was great. I so had, so how, I how are we going to globally figure out what where to go back to when, or where to go to? When really all the UN can do is produce a marginally attractive holiday card. So, I mean, but the it's actually fun. I did a podcast called The Energy Policy Draft where I had eight folks on and I yeah. made them energy czar and said, yeah. you can have your one choice. And David Ramsden would went eighth and he said, I'm drafting coal. I would have taken this with the eighth pick or the number one pick because I'm Canadian and I would put I would put a coal plant on every corner because if we could raise the temperature on the planet five degrees, Canada would be bearable. And so I mean that was 
But yeah. I mean, I'll even take it one step further than yeah. you is who's going to decide. And right. quite frankly, could we even decide? I mean, would we, are we going to be able to manage the climate? We can't even model the climate, much less are we going to be able to manage it and know what the appropriate CO2 yeah. levels are. But the, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's such a complicated problem. But I'll tell you what, I mean, you know, and it's going to make me sound like sort of a Texas fanboy, but I think Texas is going to be in the middle of whatever we do, yeah. right? Because if if the answer turns out, if we all agree the answer is storing carbon, well, Texas has been dealing with reservoirs for a long, long time. And if the answer is producing more energy and we adapt, I think Texas will be in the middle of that. So, you know, from my vantage point, you know, reporting on energy and, and business here in Texas, I, I, I can't kind of wait to see what happens because it's going to be interesting. Well, and and the other thing, too, is when you look kind of through history, this is a little bit of stretch, a little bit of an oversimplification, but you basically have to leverage previous technologies mm -hmm. yeah. to get to the next step to make it economically viable. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if we had no energy infrastructure, we'd probably start with hydrogen today, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's, that's where we'd start. But actually getting there, we're going to have to utilize the, uh, the existing – existing infrastructure so yeah and i look i find that at all fascinating you know getting back to the craddocks you know one of the things i was sort of thinking about is well we have all these questions and we can kind of hash it out and try to figure it out but at the end of the day there's some really difficult questions that we need to address in terms of energy and what energy do we want to be using in 10 years how much do we want to be exporting how do we handle the china and india issue you know everything we're talking about and you know we're going to need leaders political leaders who have that people have faith in and believe are looking out and trying to understand what's best for Texas. And I think one of the things that my reporting kind of raised is, is that the Craddocks, you know, are they looking out for that $10 million a year revenue uh, into the family partnership? Um, which then they diversify and they've been buying some real estate, you know, so is it, is it the family business or is it the Texas future? And, and I'm not sure you can kind of be doing both simultaneously. Yeah. The beyond me at least. Yeah. And, and one other thing that I kind of thought of when I was reading the article in fairness to Tom Craddock, a lot of the policies that look self-serving for him, that's what his district wants, mm -hmm. you know? Sure. And I mean, yeah. the, you know, that, that truly is. He I, represents Midland. <laughs> yeah, you, you, exactly. I mean, you talked about people keeping, you know, having legislation that made it potentially more favorable for people with overrides and that they can't get kicked off leases if leases, right. new leases are taken. Every old oil and gas guy in Midland wants that, you know? But, you know, you bring up this great point. And I wrote about in, in, in the two articles I wrote on this um, – about the overriding royalty interests, right? And there's this washout provision that Tom Craddock had proposed and he wanted, and two years ago, he proposes this. And the, the, the idea behind the legislation is that if you, if you have an overriding royalty interest, you can't be washed out. Or if you are washed out, you can go to court and sort right. of sue someone. So two years ago, it passes and, and Governor Abbott vetoes it and says, no, nope, we're not going to do it because this is just going to create litigation and you should have just gotten yourself a better deal to begin with and, and hashed all this out. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that Tom Craddock proposes that. He testifies on behalf of it. Never once mentions that he personally owns hundreds of overriding royalty interests. 
the lawyer who also testified, the two people testify in favor of it, it's Tom Craddock and a lawyer out of San Antonio. That lawyer was also Tom Craddock's personal lawyer representing him uh, in a washout. So it's vetoed two years ago. He brings it back up verbatim, the exact same law this session. Once again, two people testifying in favor of it. Tom Craddock, who gets up there and, and says, and I forget exactly the, the language I should have brought in front of me. This doesn't affect me. I'm not personally. And I was like, yeah, of course you are, man. It's like I've seen the overrides. Um, and the other person, once again, his lawyer testifies. And there's no disclosure. To, to lawmakers or to anyone that the two people testifying in favor of this bill are personally benefiting from this, or at least the hired lawyer to help the person benefit. This time, once again, the legislator passed it. And for reasons we haven't been able, I haven't been able to figure out, the governor lets it go into law this time. Um, you know, I guess what it comes down to is, yeah, you're right. There are probably a lot of people in Midland who like that legislation. They've got overrides. They're, you know, maybe they did some work on a bunch of wells. They're holding on to overrides. Their dad did overrides and it stayed in the family. But, yeah, we need a little transparency here in our lawmaking. You know, I'm proposing this bill. This bill affects me, but I think it's a good idea, right? I've had personal experience with this. I've been screwed over with a, a washout and I've learned. And here's my lawyer who's going to help explain it to you. I think that's a lot more honest and forthcoming then, oh, this doesn't affect me, but you should pass it anyway. So, you know, and just because there are a bunch of people in Midland who are in favor of it, there are probably people in Midland who take the other position, right? Yeah. You know, who are an oil and gas company. They like, screwed me for this override 20 years ago. I ought to be got, any, or or yeah. how am I going to produce this? Because there are all these overrides here. You know, right. this has been layered on with 20% overrides. I can't make a good, honest well. I'm going to have to just kind of wash it clean or else I'm not going to be able to do any oil and gas development here. I mean, that's, hey, that that's oil and gas. That's how it works, right? right. If you've got a well which is encumbered with 20% of overrides that are not paying any of the capital to develop it, you're not going to be producing, you're not going to be drilling a new well there. Right. So, you know, so there are probably a lot of people in Midland who are like, you know, I want to be drilling wells and I don't want all this these overrides, you know, cluttering it up. And, and at a certain point, we just, we do need to wash them out. Like, yeah, you've made your money. It's time to move on. So I hate to say this. I even hate to close a uh -oh. podcast with this. So the libertarian in me is actually quaking. I think it was Thomas Sowell, but one of the, one of the conservative writers from the past, it wasn't Freeman, it wasn't Buckley, but I think it was Thomas Sowell actually said, you know, we ought to pay a congressman a million and a half dollars a year, make it a good job, put all sorts of restrictions on them. Right, they can't right. buy and sell stocks. They can't do all that, but make it a good enough job where they don't have to steal or they don't have to have conflicts or they don't have to do things that aren't as transparent as we like. If it was a really good job and they could make a good living, there you go. So I don't know that I've gotten there, but <laughs> you're entertaining it. I'm entertaining, entertaining it now because it. it'd be a huge change for Texas. Can you imagine Texas where instead of trying to keep our legislature as sort of small and inconsequential, we pay them a good salary? We have this idea like, you know, maybe you need to meet year round, you know? I mean, there are downsides to that, right? right. You know, yeah. it's it's not the Texas way. We don't want our legislators meeting year round because then they'd come up with all sorts of new ideas and laws that no one wants. I get that, but maybe paying them a little bit of money so that they don't have to be running around as lease hounds and doctors on the side. Um, 
so they can concentrate on doing the people's business. Might not be the worst thing. Yeah. Yeah. Dare I say term limits. Oops. Okay. <laughs> Russell, this was cool. You coming on. This oh, man, was, it was a pleasure. A, this was awesome. This was a, this was a lot of fun. And thanks for uh, hosting in the Texas monthly studio. This uh, is really cool. Welcome back anytime. Awesome.